As we've followed the story of Jeremiah's life and his preaching, we've heard many of the messages he proclaimed in Judah. In fact, as far as we can tell, Jeremiah spent almost all of his life in Judah. He grew up in a place called Anathoth, just three miles away from Jerusalem. And most of Jeremiah's career as a prophet was in Jerusalem. The only record we have of him going anywhere beyond that comes in chapter 43 of the book, when as an old man, he is taken by force down to Egypt. From what we've seen and heard of Jeremiah, he's a man of Judah with a message for Judah, and he stays in Judah. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, but if we were paying attention a few months ago, when we looked at the very first chapter of this book, then we ought to be beginning to feel that something is missing. Maybe you've had the experience of watching a trailer for a film and then going to see the film itself, only to find some of the bits that caught your attention in that two-minute preview don't actually appear in the full-length film that you go to see. That seems to happen quite a lot. And it can feel like a bit of a letdown, as if the filmmakers have got you there under false pretenses somehow. It wasn't what you were expecting. And now having gone through 43 chapters of Jeremiah, we might be wondering if something similar has gone on here. And here's why we might think that. In chapter 1, when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he said this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then a few verses further on, God says to Jeremiah, See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. It's right there in the trailer. Jeremiah has been appointed a prophet to the nations. But so far, we've only seen a local prophet with a local message. And there's very good reason for that. God had plenty of business to attend to with just the people of Judah. For years, Jeremiah needed to focus on warning those people and calling them to turn to God in repentance while they still had time to do that. And then when time ran out and Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, most of the people went away into exile in Babylon. But it looked like there might still be hope for those left in Judah. Jeremiah stayed with that little remnant of people. Maybe with his input they could build something in the ruins there. Maybe God's new covenant promises would be fulfilled through that little group of people in Judah. That's what we might have wondered, but over the last two weeks, we've seen that hope come to nothing at all. The remnant of the people under the leadership of Gedaliah and then Johanan, they first didn't want to hear God's word through Jeremiah, and then when they finally sought God's word in desperation, they rejected it when it came. God said to them, stay in Judah, I'll be with you, I'll save you there, and the people said, no way. And they took off to Egypt in defiance of God's word. And where that leaves us is, it's over for Judah. It looked over when Jerusalem was conquered and the exiles left, and now we know it really is over. 
Because even the people who were left behind have left. They've run to the absolute dead end of Egypt. That group is not the future. And it's at this point when the hope of God's future blessing coming through those in Judah is totally and finally exhausted, now we get the part that was promised in the trailer. We finally see Jeremiah in his role as prophet to the nations. He speaks to the least of the nations and to the greatest of them. And his message to all of them is that Israel's God is Lord of the nations. We got to chapter 43 last week. In chapter 44, God confirms what we heard last week. His promises for the future will not be fulfilled through the group that ran down to Egypt. Chapter 44 is God's last word to that miserable little group. That group who believed they knew better than God. Then chapter 45 records a very brief word of reassurance to Baruch. He was Jeremiah's scribe who helped him. God says to Baruch, I will save you. And then come God's messages to the nations. In chapter 46, God speaks to Egypt. In chapter 47, to the Philistines. In chapter 48, to Moab. In chapter 49, to Ammon, Edom, the city of Damascus, Kedar, and the kingdoms of Hazor and Elam. Those chapters are a walk through all the neighbors of Judah. All the nations around who might have thought God was only interested in Judah. And that only Judah was accountable to God. Chapters 46 to 49 blow away that idea. The message to all of those nations is... God's requirements are the same for every nation. And his mercy is available to every nation. He never overlooks or excuses sin in any country or any city or any town. He cares just as much about evil in Damascus as he did in Jerusalem. He doesn't come down on Judah's sin while turning a blind eye to Moab or Edom's sin. And at the same time, those chapters tell us there is hope for those who will heed God's warning and turn to him in repentance. Whether they're Philistines or Ammonites or Elamites. In other words, the God we've been hearing about in the book of Jeremiah is not some local God with only local concerns. He is truly Lord of the nations. And all nations need to respond to him. And there's one very significant nation we haven't mentioned yet. Babylon. The big one. The daddy of them all. At least at this point in history. God has left his message to Babylon until the very last. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 50. If you're using a church Bible, it's on page 814, or in the larger print Bibles, 1263. And we'll take the time to read all of Jeremiah chapter 50. 
This is the word the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Let nothing but keep nothing back, but say, Babylon will be captured. Baal will be put to shame. Marduk filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. No one will live in it. Both people and animals will flee away. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces towards it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. Their enemies said, we're not guilty for they sinned against the Lord, their verdant pasture, the Lord, the hope of their ancestors. Flee out of Babylon. Leave the land of the Babylonians. Be like the goats that lead the flock. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her, and from the north she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty-handed. So Babylonia will be plundered. All who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. Because you rejoice and are glad, you who pillage my inheritance, because you frolic like a heifer threshing corn and neigh like stallions, your mother will be greatly ashamed. She who gave you birth will be disgraced. She will be the least of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert. Because of the Lord's anger, she will not be inhabited, but will be completely desolate. All who pass Babylon will be appalled. They will scoff because of all her wounds. Take up your positions round Babylon, all you who draw the bow. Shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shoot against her on every side. She surrenders. Her towers fall. Her walls are torn down. Since this is the vengeance of the Lord, take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done to others. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the reaper with his sickle at harvest. Because of the sword of the oppressor, let everyone return to their own people. Let everyone flee to their own land. Israel is a scattered flock that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I punish the king of Assyria. But I will bring Israel back to their own pasture, and they will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Their appetite will be satisfied in the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare." Attack the land of Marathiam and those who live in Picard. Pursue, kill, and completely destroy them, declares the Lord. Do everything I have commanded you. The noise of battle is in the land, the noise of great destruction. 
How broken and shattered is the hammer of the whole earth. How desolate is Babylon among the nations. I set a trap for you, Babylon, and you were caught before you knew it. You were found and captured because you opposed the Lord. The Lord has opened his arsenal and brought out the weapons of his wrath. For the sovereign Lord Almighty has work to do in the land of the Babylonians. Come against her from afar. Break open her granaries. Pile her up like heaps of grain. Completely destroy her and leave her no remnant. Kill all her young bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them for their day has come. The time for them to be punished. Listen to the fugitives and refugees from Babylon. Declaring in Zion how the Lord our God has taken vengeance. Vengeance for his temple. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who draw the bow. Encamp all around her. Let no one escape. Repay her for her deeds. Do to her as she has done. For she defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men will fall in the streets. All her soldiers will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. See, I am against you, you arrogant one, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. For your day has come, the time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall, and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all who are around her. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah as well. All their captors hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Yet their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. He will vigorously defend their cause so that he may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. A sword against the Babylonians, declares the Lord, against those who live in Babylon and against her officials and wise men. A sword against her false prophets. They will become fools. A sword against her warriors. They will be filled with terror. A sword against her horses and chariots and all the foreigners in her ranks. They will become weaklings. A sword against her treasures. They will be plundered. A drought on her waters. They will dry up. For it is a land of idols. Idols that will go mad with terror. So desert creatures and hyenas will live there. And there the oil will dwell. It will never again be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. As I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Along with their neighboring towns, declares the Lord, so no one will live there. No people will dwell in it. Look, an army is coming from the north. A great nation and many kings are being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bows and spears. They are cruel and without mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, daughter Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard reports about them, and his hands go limp. Anguish has gripped him, pain like that of a woman in labor. Like a lion coming up from Jordan's thickets to a rich pasture land, I will chase Babylon from its land in an instant. Who is the chosen one I will appoint for this? Who is like me? And who can challenge me? And what shepherd can stand against me? Therefore, hear what the Lord has planned against Babylon, what he has purposed against the land of the Babylonians. The young of the flock will be dragged away. Their pasture will be appalled at their fate. At the sign of Babylon's capture, the earth will tremble. 
Its cry will resound among the nations. This is God's word. And there are three truths that weave their way in and out of this whole passage. The God of the Bible is the only real superpower. He is the enemy of the arrogant. And he is the strong redeemer. Those truths appear and reappear all the way through this passage. But it does break down into three sections, and each one of those sections has its own particular emphasis. First, in verses 1 to 20, the God of the Bible is the only real superpower. In the second half of the 20th century, there were two superpowers in the world, America and the USSR, the Soviet Union. And they were constantly posturing against one another. Both of them spent colossal amounts of money trying to beat each other in space travel. They called it the space race. And it wasn't really that either of them cared all that much about getting into space or walking on the moon. I'm sure there was a bit of pioneering scientific spirit behind it all, but the main motivator for America and for the Soviet Union was just getting one over on the other, proving they were the most powerful superpower. No government cares enough about science and technology to spend quite those amounts of money on it. The money was spent on trying to be the dominant power in the world. Now today, things have changed quite a bit. The Soviet Union has broken up. America's still there. And now China is a big factor. But in 587 BC, there was only one superpower in the world. It was Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was pretty much unrivaled. No one could stand against him. Judah, Egypt, and all the other nations, they were just like flies buzzing around a Bengal tiger. It could be mildly irritating at times to Babylon, but they could do nothing against Babylon. Babylon ruled the world, and for 49 chapters of this book, Babylon has loomed large over everything that's gone on in the book. But here in our passage, God speaks directly to Babylon, and he wants Babylon to know. He, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of Jeremiah, He is the only real superpower. The biggest and the most powerful of the nations, they rise and fall at God's command. The length and the extent of their power is completely in God's hands. Look again at chapter 50, verse 2. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back, but say, Babylon will be captured. Baal will be put to shame, Marduk filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame, her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. No one will live in it, both people and animals will flee away. So God wants this message proclaimed far and wide. It's for everybody to hear because it's big news. God is announcing here the whole world order is going to be turned upside down. 
The international landscape is going to be reshaped. And this is not just saying that politics are going to change. God is saying everything you thought you knew about the world is going to change. He says, Baal will be put to shame, Marduk will be filled with terror. Who are they? Well, Marduk was the god of the Babylonians. He was also known as Baal, which means Lord. And as they understood it, Marduk had killed a god called Tiamat, and then Marduk became the top god, and he created the world. But here, the god of the Bible, Yahweh, which is translated in our Bibles as capital L-O-R-D, the personal god of the Bible, he says Marduk is going to be disgraced. He's going to be exposed as a nothing, just an image, an idol, as verse 2 goes on to say. So the Lord is not just saying, I rule over nations and their kings. He's saying, I rule over the powers those nations worship. Whatever supernatural forces people try to tap into, whatever spiritual beings they call on, I rule over those as well. And in Babylon's case, God says, I'm going to lay waste her land. I'm going to expose her gods as frauds. It's not just Babylon's power and possessions, but her way of looking at the world is going to crumble. The powers she trusted in are going to fail her very publicly. And if any of us wonder about that, just consider how many people today in the world worship Marduk. How many of us have even heard of Marduk until three minutes ago? He's completely gone. He dominated at one time the way people understood the world. But he's forgotten. To the people who first heard this message, it would have seemed unthinkable that Marduk would just vanish from people's minds. But it happened. And equally unthinkable when Jeremiah proclaimed this was the idea that a nation from the north would crush Babylon. That's in verse 3. Who were Babylon's rivals at this time? Who could conceivably do this? It seemed laughable. It was a silly idea. But you may remember when Jeremiah started his ministry in Judah decades before this, he had prophesied that a foe from the north would attack Judah. And at that time, that idea seemed laughable because Babylon hadn't yet risen to power when Jeremiah was a young man. There was no foe from the north to threaten Judah. But we've seen Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled. Babylon rose and Babylon came from the north. And here God promises Babylon at the height of its power, I can do it to you as well. I can raise up another different foe from the north. Right now you can't see any rival, but I'm the real superpower. I raise up kingdoms and I cause them to fall, including mighty Babylon. God promises the destroyer will be destroyed. And he gives more details about it if you look down to verse 9. 
I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her, and from the north she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty-handed. History shows us this is referring to the Medes and the Persians. They were the ones who finally overthrew Babylon. And they weren't just one nation. But as the prophecy says, they were an alliance of nations. Historians tell us the emperor Xerxes, who led them, had soldiers in his army from 22 different nationalities. None of that was on the horizon when Jeremiah proclaimed this message. But history shows God did exactly what he promised to do. If you look down to verse 14, God shows the level of his control in all this. He speaks in advance to the attacking armies of the Medes and the Persians. He speaks as their ultimate commanding officer down in verse 14. Take up your positions round Babylon, all you who draw the bow. Shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shoot against her on every side. She surrenders, her towers fall, her walls are torn down. Since this is the vengeance of the Lord, take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done to others. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the reaper with his sickle at harvest. God is showing he doesn't just make a general plan of things and then hope for the best hoping that all the details will work themselves out. No, God shows his control is much, much greater than that. He commands even the troops on the ground, better than any general could. He is truly and completely Lord of the nations. And he always has been. Look how verse 17 shows that. Israel is a scattered flock that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. Babylon was not the first world superpower. Before Babylon, there was Assyria. It was Assyria that devastated the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. But by this point in time, as Jeremiah speaks, Assyria is just a distant memory. Just a chapter in the history books. They were completely beaten by the Babylonians in 612 BC. And here God says to mighty Babylon, I was the one who used you to remove Syria. Assyria. And God says, I will use the Medes and Persians to remove you, Babylon. You're big and powerful. So was Assyria. But no nation and no empire is bigger or more powerful than me. They all rise and fall at my command. And that didn't end with the Medes and the Persians. It was true of the Romans and their mighty, vast empire. It was true of the Nazis and their plans for a thousand-year Reich. It was true of the Soviet Union. It was true of every big, imposing world power that you and I can think of. 
Today, maybe we wonder what China's going to do. What's the future for their involvement in the world? We wonder about America. But as you and I watch the news and as we hear all the speculation that goes on, let's remember there's only one real superpower. It's not China, it's not America. It is the God who created the universe. The God who has raised up and brought down every power since he created the universe. And he's no less in control today over the powers of our time. He's the one to fear. He's the one to put your hope in. He's the one whose power doesn't rise and fall over time. He is above all rulers and all nations. He lends power to them for a time according to his plan, and he removes their power according to his plan. But that does, I think, raise a question for all of us. The question is this. If God raises up nations according to his plan, if they become his instruments to do his will, how can he turn around and punish them for doing what he raised them up to do? Babylon is a good example of that. In this book, King Nebuchadnezzar has been presented to us as God's means of bringing judgment on Judah. God didn't zap Judah with lightning bolts out of the sky. He punished Judah's sin through Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian armies. So why is God now promising to punish Babylon? Doesn't that seem unfair? Well, in our passage, God explains why actually it is perfectly fair. It's fair because he is the enemy of the arrogant. And the reality is, God did not force Babylon kicking and screaming to go and attack Judah. When King Nebuchadnezzar led his armies, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He had no sense at all that he was carrying out God's judgment on evil Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was driven entirely by his own lust for power. The Nebuchadnezzar that God used was an arrogant empire builder. And he needed no persuasion to go and crush other nations. Look how Babylon is described down in verse 21. And here again... God is speaking to the Medes and the Persians who will in the future overthrow Babylon. God says, Attack the land of Merathiam and those who live in Picard. Pursue, kill, and completely destroy them, declares the Lord. Merathiam and Picard are both plays on words. They are areas of Babylon, but here their names have been changed ever so slightly to mean out-and-out rebellion and doom. The point being made with those two plays on words is that Babylon herself is a rebel against God. Verse 23 points out, she gives such shattering blows against other nations that she became known as the hammer of the whole earth. What a fantastic title to have. And she loved her reputation. 
She was drunk with her own power and fame. She didn't see herself as God's friend and God's servant. She was not seeking God's glory in any way. Babylon wanted the glory for herself. Earlier in this chapter, God said to Babylon, you rejoice and are glad as you pillage Judah. God says, you dance with glee about the destruction you cause. You frolic like a heifer threshing corn. I have no idea really what that would look like. Never seen a heifer threshing corn, but I assume that they're happy doing that because they get to eat as much of the corn as they like while they thresh it. And that's what Babylon was like in attacking Judah. There was no solemn sense that they were bringing justice on evildoers. As far as Babylon was concerned, it was a party. Look what we can do whenever we choose to do it. We can crush whoever we want under our feet. We can take what we like from people. And God says, yes, Babylon, you were my instrument to punish Judah for her sin. But you were also unbelievably arrogant. You wanted glory all for yourself. You took delight in bringing destruction and gathering up wealth for yourself. And so, Babylon, you will be punished too. Look down to verse 29. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who draw the bow. Encamp all round her, let no one escape. Repay her for her deeds. Do to her as she has done. For she defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, her young men will fall in the streets. All her soldiers will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. See, I am against you, you arrogant one, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. For your day has come. The time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all those who are around her. Every nation, every regime will be held accountable by God. And the fact that God can use humanity's evil intentions to achieve his own purposes, that does not take away human guilt for those evil intentions. As the text says, it is possible to defy the Lord with an arrogant attitude even while serving his larger purposes in the world. Just as a more recent example, if we think of the Second World War, is it possible that war brought a degree of God's judgment on the nations of Europe through the chaos that was caused by the Nazis. Is that possible? Is it possible God was using that to punish those nations for forsaking Him? And thinking that they could literally write Him out of the picture in science and in philosophy. Yes, of course that's possible. But does that mean the evils done by the Nazis should then be overlooked? Absolutely not. However God may have used their evil intentions to accomplish His purposes, their intentions and their actions were evil. 
and unimaginably arrogant. And God is the enemy of the arrogant. Every Nazi atrocity will be punished, even if it escaped punishment in this life. God will not overlook it. He is Lord of the nations. And he doesn't give any nation a get-out-of-jail-free card just because he's able to achieve his purposes through their evil intentions. All nations will be held to account, including North Korea, including China, and America, and Britain, for our defiance of God and his word. Our arrogance and thinking we can live without him. But that is not the only message God has for the nations. In this passage, he also tells us he is the strong redeemer. That truth has been in each of the previous two sections, but I think it's most obvious in these last verses of the chapter. Look down to verse 33. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people of Israel are oppressed and the people of Judah as well. All their captors hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Yet, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is His name. He will vigorously defend their cause so that He may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. The language that's used here is a reminder of a previous time when the people of Israel were oppressed, when they were held fast by captors who refused to let them go. Many generations before this, that was the Israelites' situation in Egypt. Pharaoh enslaved them, and he would not let them go. The book of Exodus records his stubborn refusal. In fact, his many stubborn refusals, despite all of the plagues that God sent on Egypt. But God didn't give up, and Pharaoh didn't win. God brought his people out. He showed his incomparable strength to save. And now as Jeremiah speaks, God's people are again oppressed in a foreign land. This time it's Babylon. They've been marched there against their will. But God promises he has not lost any of his power at all. He calls himself their redeemer. A redeemer is someone who takes responsibility to act on somebody else's behalf. To deliver that person or that people, to avenge the wrongs done to them and to protect them. In the Old Testament, this would happen within families. If you were in trouble... A relative would take responsibility to work on your behalf. They would be your redeemer, whatever your trouble was. But in the Bible, God presents himself as the ultimate redeemer. His people are truly his people. They're family. And God takes responsibility for them. Other redeemers might do their very best and yet feel. But God's people have a Redeemer who is incomparably strong. Look at the description we're given of this 
overwhelming strength as it comes against Babylon in verse 35. A sword against the Babylonians, declares the Lord, against those who live in Babylon and against her officials and wise men. A sword against her false prophets. They will become fools. A sword against her warriors. They will be filled with terror. A sword against her horses and chariots and all the foreigners in her ranks. They will become weaklings. A sword against her treasures. They will be plundered. A drought on her waters. They will dry up. For it is a land of idols. Idols that will go mad with terror. All of God's great strength comes into play not only to punish Babylon, but to redeem God's people from Babylon's oppression. And the following verses in the chapter remind us God is going to do this through human armies, an army from the north. But these verses make clear, ultimately, this is the work of the Almighty Redeemer. When he comes determined to deliver his people, no power can stand against him. Not even the greatest power on the whole earth. And that truth should be enough to make all people on earth fear the Lord. Look at the very end of the chapter in verse 46. Summing this all up, at the sound of Babylon's capture, the earth will tremble. Its cry will resound among the nations. Today, Babylon means very little to us. I doubt any of us ever give Babylon a thought unless we're talking about it in a sermon. Babylon today is just the site of archaeological ruins. And even those ruins were only discovered within the last two centuries. They were buried for generations. It's hard for you and me to imagine that Babylon once ruled the world. But those who heard Jeremiah preach, it would have been equally hard for them to imagine that one day Babylon wouldn't rule the world. One writer says about Babylon, there could hardly be a greater contrast between ancient magnificence and present desolation. The disappearance of once mighty Babylon testifies that God is the only real superpower. And he is the enemy of the arrogant. Those who think they're powerful are wise to pay attention to that truth. Those who feel like they're powerless, they can take courage from that truth. And all people can find hope in the final truth we've seen in this passage. This all-powerful God is also the strong Redeemer. Long before this, he broke Pharaoh's grip. History shows these promises to break Babylon's grip were fulfilled. And most wonderful of all, God has broken the grip of sin. There are many people in the world today who are oppressed and even enslaved by other human beings. But all of us were born enslaved by sin. We might not like to admit that, but we can see the effects of sin in our relationships, can't we? 
even the good ones. We can see the effects of sin in our words, what we can do to other people with our words, what they can do to us. We see the effects of sin in our actions, the way we treat others, the way we are treated. We can see the effects of sin in our state of mind. Our slavery to sin impacts every single part of our lives. And maybe you're experiencing that reality right at the moment. Maybe you feel like you're in chains that you can't break free from. Ultimately, our sin cuts us off from God, not just from each other. Sin brings a distance we cannot overcome, a barrier we can't cross. But he is the strong redeemer. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he came to break sin's hold on us. Jesus died and rose again to free us from the power of sin. Reconcile us to God. This message about deliverance from Babylon, it was really good news for the Israelites in exile there. But the message about deliverance from sin is good news for all the people all the time, including you and me. Today, the same Redeemer who brought exiles home from Babylon is bringing sinners home to his family. So if you're not trusting in Jesus, you need to. The Bible says it is pure arrogance for you or me to think we can live a good life or please God without Jesus. But if we will humble ourselves and look to Jesus, he will give us life and peace and purpose. And if you are trusting in Jesus, then you have nothing to fear. Your Redeemer is above every other power. He will never be overthrown. His work will never be out of date. No new idea will ever come and take him by surprise. He is the Redeemer who never, ever fails. You are safe with Him from now and for all of eternity. So let's trust Him. Let's renew our trust in Him. And let's praise Him together as we sing, I will glory in my Redeemer.